Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, our text will be verses 11 to 21. Our text this morning, of course, is one that is very loved by many, and rightly so. It is one that is a very familiar passage, as it contains one of Jesus' most well-known sayings, as he says that I am the good shepherd. You know, we can grasp within this, in this, these metaphors that he's using, we can, we can really try to grasp at least some of the great affection that Christ has for his people and the extent that he would go to in order to save them. That's what we're learning here in this passage. His willingness to go to the fullest measure of whatever is necessary to save his people. What a great love your shepherd has for you. What great care that he provides for you. Not only does he willingly give himself on behalf of sinners, but he knows you to the very depths of who you are. Your heart is laid bare before him and still he loves you and he died for you. He doesn't just know you in a general sense. He knows you intimately. He knows you exhaustively. That is the amazing aspect of our great shepherd is that he just doesn't know us generally. He knows us intimately. And in spite of ourselves, he still loves us. He still loves us even though we wander from him. Even though we desire sometimes to go our own way and not to hearken until it, unto his voice. He still loves us and he still made us his own. As the psalmist says, we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. We see in this passage here more, even more of the character of God that is put on display for us. And I emphasize that a lot because I, I want you to understand that throughout every saying of Jesus, every discourse that he gives, every word that proceeds from the mouth of our Lord Jesus Christ is revealing more to us about the very character and nature of God. That's why I want us to understand and to, to hear that as we enter into these passages. Every word that he says discloses something about himself. Consider this. When Jesus came, when he came down from heaven, when he took on the form of man, this is God in the flesh. This is the one who dwells with the Father, who dwells with the Holy Spirit, who is in intimate communion and in intimate fellowship with the other members of the triune God. But when Jesus came down, he did not disclose the deepest recesses of the being of God. He didn't disclose those things to us. The complexity of the being of God, he didn't go into. He didn't teach us of those things. He didn't teach us of the mystery of the triune nature of God. He didn't teach us of the, the fullness of the power and the might of God. He didn't come down to give us great discourses of that, to teach us intimately these great things that we wonder about. He didn't disclose to us the mystery of the incarnation, how it is that God could 
who become man, who could take, take on humanity, add humanity to his being, that even the little baby in the manger is still the God of all glory. He didn't disclose those things to us. The things concerning his, his majesty and his splendor and his glory. He didn't, he didn't teach us those things exhaustively. And the reason being is our finite minds couldn't understand it. Our finite minds cannot grasp the infinite. And so he didn't teach us those things. He didn't come down to, to give us a great, a great discourse on the holiness of God and what that means. Or the perfection of God and what that means. Not exhaustively. How, how is it that, that God can be so transcendent? So many, so many things that, that we wonder about. So many things that we seek to study of the immensity of God and the transcendence of God. Again, the holiness of God, perfection of God, the kindness of God. So many things that we, we often we, we give ourselves over to the study of. But when Jesus was here, he did not say, now gather around and let me teach you about the immensity of God. Let me teach you about the transcendence of God. Let me teach you about the oneness of God or the simplicity of God. He didn't give us great discourses like that. Again, because our finite minds can't understand it. Can't grasp it. But with every discourse that he did give. He was revealing more about himself to us in a way that we could understand in a way that we can at least grasp grasp something. Of his majesty and his glory. And that's why when you approach a passage of scripture like this. And when Jesus says that I am the good shepherd. He is disclosing something about his nature. And about his character. And about his care over his people. He's, he's demonstrating. He's showing forth his love. His great commitment to the people of God. Those that the father had given to him. And the extent that he would go to save them. And so that's why with every passage of Scripture, every discourse, every statement of our Lord Jesus Christ is so important and so vital because it is Him revealing more about Himself in a way that we can understand, in a way that we can, that we can see something about Him, to know more about Him. And He does it in passages like this. He likens Himself to something that we can know he reveals his character through through metaphors and parables and other literary devices, as he does often. He's doing so again here. And, you know, the amazing thing is, is that even if we were to know everything there is to know about this particular passage of Scripture, we would still only be scratching the surface of who God really is. Of the majesty of a Christ of Christ Jesus, our Lord, we would still only be scratching the surface. Scratching the surface, not only of his nature, but of his love. Who can know the breadth, the height, the depth of the love of God that is seen here? The protection that he gives, the care. The times as it was in time past. Sometimes our Lord reveals himself in such a way as to declare what he is not. That's what often happens in many of the creeds. You take the Chalcedonian Creed, for example, as you're, as you're approaching this Great mystery concerning the nature of Christ. How is, how is it he can be divine and human? He's truly God. He's truly man. And yet the two natures are not mingled together. They're not mixed together. They're not confused. 
Each retains their specific properties, yet make up the one man, Jesus Christ. How can that be? Well, a lot of times they have to use what is not happening in order to describe it. And Jesus does that here again, so that we may know something about his character. He contrasts himself with that of the hirelings. This is what I'm not like so that you may grasp something of what I am like. This is an amazing passage, a beloved passage. And I pray that we would give our attention over to it, to learn from it, to learn the amazing things of the, the character of our God and yet the things that he also calls us to do. I pray that the spirit of God who resides within us would reveal more and more of the magnificence of our Lord Jesus, who is the good shepherd. If you would, please stand with me. This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible word of the living God. Let us give our attention to hear what he says. Verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Even as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. A division occurred again among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying he has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying these are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? Let's pray together. Oh God of all grace, we give you thanks this morning. We give you thanks because of passages like these in which we may know you even more. Father, guide our thoughts. Incline our hearts towards you by the Spirit of God who dwells within us. Pray, Father, that he would teach us. That he would Open our eyes to this passage and illuminate this text in our hearts that we may grasp something of the majesty of our God and that we may understand what it is that you call us to do in light of these wonderful truths. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the sacrifice of our Lord in which we are able to come into your presence. Be glorified this day and may Christ be magnified in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Within this passage, of course, we have another of the I am statements. Just as it was last week, we had an, an I am statement. These are, of course, unique to the Gospel of John. You have these being given in the context of Jesus speaking to the people, 
speaking before the religious leaders, and he is pointing back to himself. He is declaring truths about himself. He is the one who has the, uh, the authority. He is the only authorized one to shepherd the flock of God. We talked about a little bit last week of the effectual calling of God, how our, our Lord stands and he calls us out of the community fold of, of Christ himself being the gate. He is the only entrance into the fold of God. There is no other way. So many things that he points back to himself in order to describe the, the, the uniqueness of who he is. The necessity of believing in him only. That he is the gate. He is the door. And there is no other way to the Father. And in our passage today, he again is declaring greater, great truths about himself. Once again, using the same kind of metaphors of, of, of being a shepherd and all this. It is very emphatic as well. We read in verse 11 of him saying, I am the good shepherd. And it actually says, I am the shepherd, the good one. And here we are learning within these few passages here of the excellency of our shepherd. Notice that he says that I am a go a me. I am the shepherd, the good one. This word good is, is this, this Greek word callous. It denotes something that is beautiful, something that is ordered, something that is virtuous. The basic meaning is beautiful, but here it indicates something that is excellent. Something that is extremely good, something that is outstanding, something that is morally excellent. And that's what Jesus is declaring about himself as he is he's going to contrast himself with the hirelings. And he is pointing directly to the religious leaders. This is you that I'm speaking of, but the good shepherd isn't like you. The good shepherd is morally excellent in everything that he is and everything that he says, everything that he does. He is trustworthy in light of these truths, because if he is morally excellent, if he is upright, if he is noble, then there is no darkness in him. There is no deception in him. He is the trusted shepherd. He is the extremely good shepherd. He is the outstanding shepherd. He is the one that is in a category to himself. There is no other shepherd that is in the same class as him. For no other can be excellent as he is. Now there is a tendency to over sentimentize. Uh, sentimentalize this passage or, or the meaning of it. Sometimes we see pictures of Jesus and you see him having a little cuddly lamb and he's you know petting the lamb or whatever. But this, as one theologian said, this is not a portrait of a kindly man holding cuddly lambs. His job was severe, tiring, and hazardous. So when Jesus is saying that he is the good shepherd... He is using this, this understanding of what a shepherd did in that day to describe his excellency in performing that very thing. For example, the shepherds of the day, they, as they were caring for the flock, their whole, their whole goal was to build up a healthy flock. And so there were a number of things that they had to do. It was not just, let's just let them out in the field and then we'll bring them in in the evening. There's so many other things that were necessary in order to care for the flock. You're talking about sheep. Sheep don't have any defense when it comes to, to uh, predators. They have to be dependent upon the shepherd to protect them because they cannot protect themselves. 
They wander. They have the, the, the need for the shepherd to guard them, to keep watch over them. The shepherd must know his flock. You know, depending on what kind of breed of, of sheep that he had, he had to know which ones flourish in, in the higher, the lower, the midlands. He had to know what his sheep needed at every time of the year in order to care for them, to nurture them. He had to know where the resources were that he could lead them to, that they would have water, that they would have what they needed to eat. He had to know. He had to know the land. He had to know where to take them, where they would not be put in danger. There were so many things that were necessary for the shepherd to know. And Jesus is taking those, those very things that were known to them and he is applying them to himself and he is saying, I am the excellent shepherd. I'm the one who is caring for them. I'm the one who is guarding them. I protect them. I provide everything that they need. And again, going back to what we learned a little bit last week of some of those Old Testament passages that describe Yahweh as the shepherd of Israel. And especially in Psalm 23, as we had sung this morning, that the good shepherd, the chief shepherd, the great shepherd, as he's called in the New Testament, is the one who provides for the flock in such a way that they want for nothing. Because he provides everything. He has great care and love for his sheep. And the excellency of who he is is seen in, in what he does for them. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Lays down his life for the sheep. This is a very important word. It's huper in the Greek. On behalf of. Instead of. Is the idea. Jesus isn't just dying for the sheep. He's not just dying as a moral teacher. He's not just dying as a great example. He's dying on behalf of his sheep. He's laying down his life on behalf of them so that by the giving of his life, sacrificially, they will be saved from the danger. That's the idea. That is showing what the good shepherd does on behalf of his people. He leads them and he guides them and he protects them. One writer says this, the Savior gave his life not as a martyr for the truth. Not as a moral example of self-sacrifice, but for a people. He died that they might live. Now, in contrast to that, he talks about the hired hand. This is what the good shepherd does. He is excellent in who he is and in everything that he does. And this is seen in him laying down his life on behalf of the sheep. He lays it down willingly. He lays his life down sacrificially. But then he's going to point back to the religious leaders as he did in the previous set of verses again. To indict them for their lack of care for the sheep of the Lord. He says, he who is a hired hand is not a shepherd who is not the owner of the sheep, he sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees 
because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. The hireling, under normal circumstances, he, he's willing to shepherd the flock for pay. You hire him, go guard the flock, and he does so not because of any care that he has over the sheep. He has nothing invested in them. He only does so so he can get paid. That's it. But in the face of danger, he puts self-interest first. He's more concerned about himself than for the sheep that he guards or is hired to guard. And he's pointing this back to the leaders of Israel. Who are the hirelings? You are the hirelings. You are the one who were supposed to guard the flock of the Lord. And instead, you are more concerned about yourself than you are of the flock of Yahweh. They failed in their duty. They failed to lead. They failed to guide. They failed to protect. They allowed the people in, in, in to be exposed to danger as they were more concerned about their status. They were more concerned about their popularity. They were more concerned about their riches. They were more concerned about having the places of honor and all the things that Jesus says of them. They're not concerned about investing themselves in other people in order to help them, in order to to be an encouragement to them, to guide them into all truth. And as Augustine said of this passage, this passage is also one that <clears throat> teaches us of what we should desire in under shepherds and pastors. We don't want hirelings. We want people that are going to invest themselves in the people of God. Who are going to protect and you protect by disclosing truth. You protect by pointing out the wolves. The wolf being any enemy of the people of God, which seeks to, to scatter them. Notice he's not devouring them, as a wolf cannot devour the, the flock of our, of our Lord, but he can scatter them. And the enemy is able to scatter them, again, because the hireling is not concerned for them. He flees when he sees the danger coming. And this is Jesus pointing out, this is what they're like. This is what they're doing. This is not who I am. I will stand at the gate and I will guard you. I will protect you. I will keep you from the enemy. I will guard your souls. I will not abandon you. I will face the danger for you. That's what he's, he's pointing out here. When, when the wolf is coming, or when the bear is coming, or when the lion is coming, whatever enemy it was of the sheep, the shepherd would stand guard. The shepherd would use his staff in order to, to drive it away. Or use whatever means he had to in order to drive away. He was invested in the flock. He had affection for the flock. He loved the flock. That's what Jesus is saying. I love you to this extent that I will not abandon you. I will not flee. And why would he flee? He has all power and authority over every enemy. What enemy would, would even frighten Christ? There are none. He stands by and he says, you can come this close, but no further. This is the one who commands the morning. 
who commands the seas, who commands all of all of creation. And he says to the enemies, you may come here and no further. To his flock, at times he allows us to go through trials and all of that, but never will we be devoured by any. We are held in the hand of the great shepherd who loves his people. We see the excellency of the shepherd, but not only the excellency of, of who he is and what he does, of his moral excellence, of his beauty as, as our great shepherd. But you see the intimacy of the good shepherd. He says, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. He knows them, not in the sense of just having a general knowledge. He doesn't just know your name. But he knows the deepest recesses of who you are. He knows your heart. He knows your thoughts afar off. He knows what you struggle with. He knows everything there is to know about you exhaustively more than you can even know about yourself. And he knows you to that extent, knows you to that, that kind of where you have that kind of intimacy with him. And that is demonstrating what great love that he has. You're not just brought into the flock of God just to be a number. You're brought into the flock of God that He may know you personally and to love you intimately. And that you may love Him to the same extent. In the same way, rather. He says, I know my own and my own know me. There is an experiential love here that you are able to know of God, of Christ. A love that you can experience because the Spirit of God who dwells within you stirs your heart and stirs your emotions and stirs your delight for Him. Your commitment to Him. He knows you. And He loves you. You are a gift of His Father to Him. And therefore, He delights in you. He delights to know you. He delights in protecting you. He delight, delights in, in guiding you through this life. I know my own. I'm not like these other shepherds who have no investment in the sheep. I know my own. Even And here's the extent of his knowledge. I mean, this is what he's liking it too. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father. That's the kind of knowledge that he has of you. Christ being God in the flesh. Well, I'll, I'll expand it a little bit more. As God himself knows, knows who he is. And he knows the deepest recesses of his being. Things that we cannot grasp of who he is. But he knows himself exhaustively. And Christ and the Holy Spirit, they know themselves exhaustively. And just as Christ knows the Father in that kind of a way, in a way that our minds cannot even comprehend, and the Father knows Him in that same way, He is saying that I know you in that way. You are my flock. You are my sheep. You have been gifted to me. And I delight in knowing you in the same way that I know the Father. 
How amazing is that? That He knows you to that extent. And sometimes that maybe makes us a little nervous. Because we know who we are. Perhaps we don't know who we are to, to, the, to the fullest of things that we are probably capable of. But we know ourselves enough to be a little nervous whenever we hear things like this of how God knows us exhaustively. Because we know what we struggle with. We know our thoughts. We know the things that we say. We know the things that we do. There are so many things that we do know about ourselves that make us ashamed. That make us embarrassed. And yet the Good Shepherd says, I know you and I know you to the extent that I love you this much. I love you with the deepest love that is in existence. I know you in this way. Because that idea of love, you go back in many passages of Scripture of how, of how you have that, that knowledge between a man and his wife that he, he knew her and she conceived. There's that language like that. God knows you exhaustively and He knows you in that loving relationship. Just as the Father knows Him, and He knows the Father. And He repeats this again. And I lay down my life for the sheep. You want to know how much He does love you? As He is saying that He knows you in this way. That He lays down His life for His sheep. He repeats it again. Now, we looked at this just a moment ago. He lays His life down on behalf of, or instead of, but here again, we can look at it and understand to the extent in which he, has, he, he gives his life. He gives his life on behalf of the sheep. This is, a, this is a truth, of course, that many people don't like. But it does teach us of the extent of the atonement. For whom did Christ die? Christ died for the sheep. Christ died for the church. He's... he's He's not just saying I died in a, in a way that just opened up the way for you to come. He, di he died in such a way that He secured it specifically for you, the people of God. He died a real death for sin. He lays down His life sacrificially on behalf of the sheep. He does so willingly. He does so uh, as a substitute. If He gives His life on behalf of He's giving his life in place of another. The sheep of God. Those that the Father had given to him. He dies a real death on their behalf. Not just generally speaking. Because if Jesus died for every single person in the world, then that means he died for nobody in particular and everybody in general. What then was accomplished? Nothing. Unless you, the sinner, decide, left to yourself, to come to Christ and then it may apply to you. That's not the kind of atonement that we're talking about here. We're talking about one in which he gives his life on behalf of his sheep. A particular people. He gave his life as a substitute. Meaning what? Meaning that he takes upon himself... The wrath of God on your behalf. 
Think of all the things that you have done in your life that have caused such shame and embarrassment. That have caused perhaps humiliation to your families. That have just brought you to your knees. Because of what shame that you felt, what guilt that you felt because of whatever it is that you've done. And Christ paid that penalty in full for that sin, for those sins, for the ones that you haven't even committed yet. And he endured the great wrath of his father, wrath that you deserve, wrath for the sins that you know of, that you have done. He endured that wrath, that intense hatred for sin, the justice that was due to them. He endured on your behalf. Not because he had to. But because he chose to. He was under no obligation to do anything. But he did so. Because he loves his sheep. Because he loves those that the father had given to him. And so he willingly endures the justice of God. For everything that you have done and have yet to do in this life. He suffered greatly so that you may be saved. That's the kind of love that the good shepherd has for his own. He doesn't flee. He doesn't abandon because of what he knows is coming. Even at the time of Jesus, of course, saying the things that he is here, that we may grasp some of these wonderful truths. He knows that in time the cross is coming. He knows what he's going to have to do. And yet from the time that he enters into the world, the time that he begins his ministry until the time that he fulfills it on the cross, he is still expressing what love that he has, what great love. What full love that he has on behalf of his people so that when he gets to this point, there is no question of what great love that he has. Even in light of the pain and the suffering that he is going to endure, he still reiterates how much he loves his people. How much he protects them. How much he is committed to them. Committed to them to the extent that he is willing to Endure the wrath of his own father in place of sinners. This isn't something to take lightly. It's something to marvel at. That the perfect fellowship, perfect unity, perfect communion that had existed among the Godhead for all eternity, the perfect love. In the moment in which Christ is going to endure the wrath of His Father, He is going to experience something that He has never experienced in His existence. And He does it on behalf of those that the Father gave Him. Think of that kind of love. How great is His love. It is unfathomable to understand that kind of love that He would do such a thing on behalf of so many that don't deserve it. So many who 
know themselves and know that they were never worthy of such a gift. Such a treasure as to have the Lord of glory to give himself on behalf of us. How can we know that? How can we grasp anything of that? That is so magnificent. It is too, too much for us to try to comprehend. What love that he has. And something that is a great, a great wonderful truth for us is that he did not do it just on behalf of the people of Israel who would believe. But he says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Traditionally, this is understood to be referring to the Gentiles. I have other sheep that I have to gather. I'm not just gathering out of Israel. I'm gathering out of the nations. And I'm going to make them one flock with one shepherd. See, the turning to the Gentiles was never plan B. It was always plan A. It was always anticipated that God would be bringing people from all the nations and make them his own. It was anticipated in the Old Testament. We're seeing it being we're seeing it played out in the New Testament. It was always the plan. And he calls them out of the nations. He calls them out of darkness. And think of this. He calls them out and he makes them one flock. With one shepherd. In Ephesians chapter 2. We read. Verse 11. Therefore remember. That formerly you. The Gentiles in the flesh. Who are called uncircumcision. By the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one. And broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is in the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. There was a time in which, of course, that you had the wall of partition which separated the court of the Gentiles and the court of the Jews. Gentiles were only permitted to come so far, so, so close rather, to the temple in which God made His presence known there. But as the Apostle Paul says, Christ tore down the wall of partition. He demolished it. He abolished it. And He took both groups that were once separated and he brought them together to make one new man. That they would be reconciled in one body. 
He's talking about Jews and Gentiles. We're not talking about having one body with two heads. There's not something just for Israel and something just for the Jew or the Gentiles. They have one Savior, one shepherd. They are one body, which is the body of Christ. He brings them in. They are one flock. Now, this is this is important to understand because this is speaking of the unity that we have with one another. He unifies us together. We have such a strong bond one with another because the spirit of God has united us. We have the same spirit of God that that has regenerated our hearts and then unites us together to to produce within us that that love for Christ. The devotion that we have, but to be one body. To be one people in Christ. I cannot understand how it is that you have so many that that, that think to themselves that they have that, that they are better off by themselves, that they're better off alone, even though the scriptures teach us these wonderful truths that you're not alone. It's not meant for you to be alone. You're meant to be within the family of God. You're meant to be part of something greater than yourself. You're not to be an island unto yourself. You have people that will come around you to encourage you, to love you. And never are you alone. Why? Because you have people that have a closer bond to you than anyone else because again, you have the same Spirit of God that you've been baptized with. You've been brought forth by the Word of Truth. You've been brought into the family of God to be one flock, to be one building, to be one temple, to be one spiritual house with one head, one master, one sovereign. Christ Jesus our Lord. That's why there's such an emphasis in the scripture to be of the same mind, maintaining the same love, devoted to one another, because we are the family of God. For he has united us and made us to be one flock. He dies on our behalf. He dies a real death for sin. And then he unites us together, not only one to another, but to himself. That you are always united to Christ. Because of the Spirit of God who dwells within you. This is what the Good Shepherd does. Never are you alone because of other believers. Never are you alone because God dwells with you. His hand of protection is there. His care for you is there. Then you see the authority of the Good Shepherd. He speaks very plainly here. Verses 17 on. After he speaks of bringing... The Gentiles in making them one flock with one shepherd. He says, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. The father delights in the son. The father delights in what the son is doing. The father loves the son to 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 the fullest. Everything that the son does pleases the father and the father delights in everything that he's doing. I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. It pleased the father, it pleased the Lord to bruise him if he would offer himself as a sacrifice 
is what Isaiah 53 says. Why did it please him? Because of what he was accomplishing. What he was doing in glorifying his father. He says, no one has taken it away. No one takes my life from me. But I lay down my life on my own initiative and I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. Here's some other amazing things about the good shepherd. Not only is he using language throughout this passage to describe himself to be the shepherd of the flock of Israel, which is pointing him back to being Yahweh, to, be, to, to being fully God. He's using the language of a goemi, which is language only that God uses in reference to himself. And then he's saying on top of that, that I have the authority to lay down my life. I have the authority to take it up again. He has life in himself. That quality of being he alone possesses. He is from everlasting to everlasting. He's not able to die. He has the power over death. It was he that breathed in the breath of life into man and man became a living soul. He has all power and authority over life, over death. He can lay down his life. He can take it up again. Now, how can that be? Huh? Did he really die? Yes, he, he really he really died in his humanity. In his humanity, he really died. According to his divinity, never could he die. Because he's God. Again, what a great mystery. How can that be? He doesn't disclose those things for us. But these are things that he does say about himself. So that we can see what power that he does have. For no other can will themselves to die and then will themselves to live. And Christ died no sooner than what he himself had determined he would. After everything was accomplished on the cross, what does he say? Into your hands I commend my spirit. And Christ gave up the ghost, as it says. Christ yielded up his spirit at his appointed time when he decided to do it. Because he has that authority over life, over death, over all the forces of this world. He has all authority. And because he has all authority, because he has life in himself, because he is from everlasting to everlasting, he can grant eternal life. Because he possesses that quality in himself that he can grant to another to live forever. Not in the same way. He never came to being as we did. But because he lives, you may live also because he has you in his power and enables you to do that. That's in his power to grant. He has that authority. How excellent is he? He does all things well. How gracious that he is to his sheep to grant them these amazing blessings, these amazing truths of who he is, of his deity, not only of him being God, but then the care that he grants. You know that he cares for you. Even in the midst of great trials and suffering, 
do you recognize that He cares for you? Even when suffering comes, do you recognize that He is still protecting you? That He is still guarding you? In moments when you feel abandoned by everybody else, do you recognize that He is always with you? And that He loves you to the fullest? You know, one thing about being a child of God, we do not grow in the love of God. You have the fullest measure of God's love toward you as soon as you are converted. You will never grow in God's love because He loves you to the fullest from the very beginning. How amazing is His love. So here's some things in light of, of those. <clears throat> those amazing truths. What does it teach us about us being sheep? It teaches us that our full dependence is to be on Him, the Good Shepherd. Because He is morally excellent. Because He is good. The way that He guides us and to the places that He guides us is the best option. We like to wander because we think that we have our, our, a better way. We wander away from the leading of God because we're enticed to do so by our, by our own devices sometimes. We think we know better. But there is no deception in the Good Shepherd. He is excellent. He is noble. He is virtuous. And the way that He leads is the way that we should follow. So He calls us to be dependent upon Him in order to, to know where we're going, to guide us, to protect us, to provide what we, what we need. We are wholly dependent upon Him. He calls us to listen to His voice, to hear His voice, to obey His voice. How do we do that? You have it right in front of you. When you know what is written, you do what is written. Because the shepherd of the sheep has provided this to you. This is the way to go. This is what I am calling you to do. This is how I call you to obey. So you follow what is written. Because this is the voice of your king to you. We are to follow. We are indeed prone to wander. But we, but we pray and ask God to keep us close. We have to keep our focus. And see Christ as the excellent shepherd for who He is. And how amazing it is that when we do wander that He seeks us out. And He brings us back into the fold. And sometimes it's a little painful when He brings us back into the fold. Because of our wandering. But everything that he does, even the trials that he gives or the, the chastening that he gives, the discipline that he gives, he does it for our good because he is the excellent shepherd. And it promotes godliness within us, even when he is disciplining us. And don't ever forget this, that you are united one to another because you are one flock in him. And so... 
it is it is necessary that you understand that it's not just you and Jesus. It's not just me and my king and that's it. There's no one else in existence. You are part of the body of Christ. You are part of the flock of God. You are you are a part in the temple of God in which the Holy Spirit dwells. Part of something much greater than you. And so, in light of those things, then, then we need to get this individualized idea out of our heads. Sometimes we think to ourselves, well, I don't need them, I don't need them. Maybe they need you. They need you to come alongside of them. They need you to, to be an encouragement. They need you to perform whatever gift it is that you've been gifted with by the Spirit of God in order to build up the body. Instead of being so isolated, give yourself over to the people of God. Commit yourself to the people of God and they to you. Because you are united together. We are all united together by the Spirit of God. And we want to stress that we are a family of God. And so we need to act as if we are a family of God. Well, I don't have time. I got too many other things going on in my life. He didn't just make you part of this flock of the, of the Lord in order that you can just decide when you want to help others or you want to decide when you want to build others up. He gifted you in the moment that He has regenerated you to be part of this body, to edify this body. We're not talking about teachings of Buddha here that you're an island unto yourself. That is the complete opposite of what it is to be in the family of God. We were all baptized with one spirit. We have one Lord. One King. So give yourself over to each other for the benefit of each other. To love one another. Because that kind of love should exist Within the local church. A great love for one another. Not this. I don't have time for you. He's called us to something even greater. Than ourselves. The good shepherd. Has called you into. His flock. He's died on your behalf. He's died as your substitute. He's demonstrated what great love that He has for you. And He calls you to love in the same way. Can we love to the extent that Jesus did? No. That's impossible. But to the extent that He did grant us that kind of love, we are to manifest it to one another. That we would please the One who gave His life for us. I pray that we would love in such a way as is what we are able that in here the local church that we would honor him and honor what he's called us to and be so grateful for every blessing that he's given that we would desire it even more how amazing our God is let's pray together God of our salvation we owe you everything we are nothing without you. We have no hope without you. We are totally dependent 
every moment on Your grace to get us through. Father, forgive us. We have not listened to the voice of our great shepherd. We have not followed in the way that he has commanded us to go. We have not conducted ourselves in the way that he has commanded of us as his people. We have not expressed the kind of love that he taught us of. Forgive us where we have failed you. But thank you so much that even in spite of ourselves, you still love us in Christ. That you love us with the same love that you have for your son. Because we are now in the son. Thank you for your great love. Now I pray, Father, for all of us here, every single one of us, that the spirit of God would stir within our hearts and accomplish great things in us of what we've read here in this passage, how we ought to be in light of these amazing truths, how we ought to be towards you, how we ought to be to one another. We pray that, that indeed you would help us and provide all that we need every moment and help us to be receptive to it, to know that your way is the best. Your way is the excellent way. Our way just leads to emptiness Father, do a mighty work within us. Accomplish great things among your people for your glory and your honor. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.